on this Friday, September 18th, 2020, and what a Friday it is. Of course, we are live on YouTube here on the official YouTube channel of Brands World, but in case you guys missed the show, you guys can check us out on all of our podcasting platforms, including Anchor, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a packed show today, including going over my best bets for the NFL in Week 2. We are once again going to be building a fantasy team through the waiver wire. I'm going to be talking about everything going on in the NBA bubble. And of course, the Big Ten is back as well. But first, ladies and gentlemen, we have to kick off this show with what happened Thursday night between the Cincinnati Bengals and the Cleveland Browns, the Battle of Ohio. Now, let me just say this to start the show, right? In life, sometimes it's very easy to be successful. You know, a lot of people's success depends on how they were brought up. You know, were you brought up in a low-class, you know, family-type home in terms of, well, did you have to work for what you had? Or were you growing up in a rich neighborhood? Your parents gave you everything you wanted. You were spoiled. You know, that stuff matters. Playing with a chip on your shoulder matters for some people. And it definitely matters for the Browns quarterback number six, Baker Mayfield. Now, let me just say this. Unless you are a Browns fan, Browns fans probably believe Baker Mayfield was, you know, the best quarterback on the field last night. I completely disagree. That was Joe Burrow. But I will say this. Baker Mayfield, for the first time since late 2018, when Greg Williams was the interim head coach of the Cleveland Browns, played well last night. But the question is, why did Baker Mayfield play well? And I'm not going to take away from Baker Mayfield. It was a great game plan. But what I saw last night, ladies and gentlemen, it was not special. It was not number one pick worthy. It was Case Keenum game management, the same way the Vikings went 13-3 and and then got destroyed by my Philadelphia Eagles in the NFC Championship game, by the way. But it was that type of game plan. Run the football, play action, play good defense, which, by the way, the, the Browns did not do. They gave up 30 points. But I also want to make this case, okay? Last night, Nick Chubb was a complete freaking animal. He averaged 5.6 yards per carry. 22 carries for 124 yards. Kareem Hunt, by the way, also had 10 carries for 86 yards. He averaged 8.6 a pop. In total, the Browns had 35 carries for 215 yards, averaging 6 yards a carry and 3 touchdowns. And Kareem Hunt had the long run of 33 yards. Let me just say this, by the way. The Bengals were also missing their two stud defensive tackles in Geno Atkins and Mike Daniels. Probably the two best defensive tackles, or at least the best tandem of defensive tackles, if not one of, in the National Football League. So the Browns smartly were able to run inside zone. They didn't run a lot of outside stuff. They ran a lot of inside zone and just gashed them. That being said, I thought Baker Mayfield made a few good throws. I thought that throw he made to Odell Beckham down the sideline was a nice throw. If he would have hit him in stride, there wouldn't have been a question of him, 
you know, hitting his knee on the goal line or not. If Odell was able to stay up and catch that ball on the run, it was an easy walk-in touchdown. But I'm not here to nitpick. Baker Mayfield played well. What I'm saying is there was nothing special out of Baker Mayfield last night. So all you Cleveland Browns fans that sit here today on this Friday celebrating the victory and celebrating that Baker Mayfield's back. Man, each on that hour wrong. Here we come. Folks, you have to be realistic, okay? Let's just realize what Baker Mayfield was when he came into the week. He had a chip on his shoulder. Everybody doubted him as the number one overall pick in the draft. He came in with Hugh Jackson. It was an absolute mess. He got a good quality interim head coach in Greg Williams, who, by the way, should have stayed on as the head coach last year, played well. He goes to an undisciplined head coach in Freddie Kitchens is a mess. He goes to a coach that looks like he knows what he's doing in Kevin Stefanski, who, by the way, is not getting enough flack for that terrible go-for call when they were... Uh, up, I believe it was 21 to 13. They could have given the field goal, made it 24 to 13. Instead, one four didn't get it. It worked out because his defense bailed him out, but that was still a terrible call, at least in my estimation. You got to take the field goal there and go up two possessions. But overall, folks, the Browns' offense moved because they were able to run the football. And we have to sit here this year. And we have to evaluate Baker Mayfield because if you guys remember last year against the Jets, Baker Mayfield played pretty well. Against the Ravens, Baker Mayfield looked like the old Baker Mayfield with Freddie Kitchens. And then what? He fell off a cliff. So we can sit here and say, you know, it's one game or two games or three games or four games. That's what I'm saying, man. The first month of the season, it's really hard to evaluate. As a football team, who's going to have a good season? Who's going to have a bad season? Who are we? Especially with all these missing pieces and COVID. But I will say there was a good sign, man, that the Browns were able to run the football. They desperately need to do that more. However, there's still a lot of work to do is my biggest takeaway. Cincinnati put up 30 points. And by the way, the real reason the Browns won this game is because their defense held Cincinnati a field goals in the red zone. At one point, as I mentioned, it was 28-13. to 13. Why was that? Both teams scored four times. The difference was the Bengals had three field goals and the Browns had four touchdowns. That is a 12-point difference, which, by the way, that was the difference in the score at that point. Of, I believe it was, what was it, 28-16 to 16 at one point. It was a 12-point difference. That's the difference between kicking three field goals and scoring three more touchdowns. So... You know, I really thought the Browns played well, but I will say this. If you're the Browns, there are some concerns. Look, the Bengals' offensive line is trash, and Joe Burrow still... I mean, Joe Burrow was running for his life last night. Let's be real. Joe Burrow was 37 of 61 for 316 yards, three touchdowns, no picks. He had a QBR of 75.9, which is just really off the charts. By the way, if you're wondering, Baker Mayfield had a QBR of 98. That dome was perfect, even though he missed seven passes. He did throw that that one interception. That was a terrible throw by Mayfield. But Burrow finished, by the way, with a passer rating of 90.6. That's very good. Baker finished with a 110.6. I, I just want to make this point that Baker as the talent. Yeah, Baker's team won the football game last night. But Joe Burrow... This kid was running around for his life. He was making plays. The Bengals were 5-5 five of five on fourth down. 
So, you know, there are definitely some good things that take away from this game, but there are some bad things that take away as well. Always not right in the world for the Browns. But this is the point I wanted to make, was the target share for the Browns. You take a look at these targets. Odell Beckham had six targets. Jarvis Landry, three targets. The next on the list was Austin Hooper with only four targets. Harrison Bryant with two targets. So I'm very curious because I saw a lot of fullback Andy Janovich last night. We saw more of the two tight end set with Austin Hooper and Harrison Bryant. I want to see more of that, especially with Njoku out. I'm a little bit concerned that Landry only got three targets, three catches for 46 yards. Odell had three catches for 69 yards in the first half. Second half, he had four catches for five yards. And obviously, the touchdown was was uh, in the first half, which, by the way, I thought his knee initially was down at the half-yard line, so I don't think that touchdown should have counted. That's just me. But... Yes, Baker Mayfield did play well. But my thing is, Brown fans, you guys overreact to everything. And I understand that. Because as fans, we are so emotional with our teams, right? We care about our guys. And we're rah-rah. We're, yeah, we're better than you. But you also have to be realistic. When I watch these special quarterbacks, Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, Russell Wilson, Carson Wentz. Look, I know Carson Wentz had a bad game on Sunday, but even in a bad game, you see special in some of his talents. Kyler Murray, you know, even Josh Allen, and now Joe Burrow. What I'm seeing with these guys is special, and what I'm seeing with Baker Mayfield is everything's got to go perfect for him. And if it does go perfect, the Browns can win football games. But, folks... The jury's still on a Baker Mayfield. I'm sorry, Browns fans, but the jury's still out. And the best quarterback on the field was Joe Burrow, and he was the second best player on the field last night, I would argue, behind Nick Chubb, who just ran like a complete animal and, in my opinion, completely took the game over. I'm really interested to see how the Browns respond against Washington next week because, you know, you got Chase Young, you got Matt Ioannidis, you got Montez Sweat, you got Jonathan Allen, you got Payne. You have all those big bodies in the middle for that Washington defensive front that just absolutely tore my Eagles offensive line apart last week. So it, it'll be an interesting matchup. You know, Washington's secondary is weak, but their front is very good. Complete opposite of Cincinnati, I would say, because their front was so weak last night. Cincinnati does have a safety in Jesse Bates, but their secondary wasn't that good either. So we'll have to see the Browns attack more for the air next week against Washington, which honestly could lead to a bad success because, like I said, they need to run the ball to be successful. All right, and now moving on, ladies and gentlemen, um, I will just say this. You know, for the past year on this show, ever since Kawhi Leonard, or as I rightfully now call him, number two, started off, of course, by the great Skip Bayless from FS1's Undisputed with Skip Bayless and Jim Sharp. But ladies and gentlemen, over the last year, I've been saying this. If the Los Angeles Clippers win the NBA championship this season, Kawhi Leonard would be in the GOAT conversation. And why is that? Because he would take the Spurs, the Raptors, and the Clippers, three different franchises, to the promised land. Something nobody in NBA history has ever done. Not Michael Jordan, not LeBron James. And then... The Clippers were up 3-1 to one of the Denver Nuggets, and they had double digits in all three games, 
and they were leading in the fourth quarter in two of those three games and completely collapsed. And in the fourth quarter of game seven, number two and his co-star, as Skip Bayless also calls him, George Paul, and he rightfully does that, put up zero points in the fourth quarter. Goose egg. Zero. You want to tell me now that the Los Angeles Clippers, and I've been saying this, ladies and gentlemen, the Los Angeles Clippers had dogs on their team. They had Leonard, they had George, they had Arrow, they had Blue Will, they had Pat Bad, they had Marcus Morris, they had Zubats. Their team was built for the Lakers, and they definitely overlooked Denver. But Denver was not a better team than the Clippers. The Clippers were the better team in this series. Denver is the classic version of the Cardiac Kids. They play hard. Mike Malone's a good coach. Jokic is one of the best centers in the NBA. Jamal Murray's a rising star point guard. But there was no excuse for the Clippers to lose this series. Hands down, they were the better basketball team. They had the better coach, I believe. And they had the better co-stars. And they just completely... Melted down. As I mentioned, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George had zero points in the fourth quarter of Game 7. The money time when it matters. It was only an eight-point game going into the fourth quarter, but the Clippers were up 12. In the third quarter, they were down eight at the end of the quarter. Nuggets obviously reversed that course by 20 points. The game was all in Denver's momentum. But it's on your stars, man. And, you know, I think everybody in the media has been saying this. Kawhi Leonard, quote-unquote, mastered load management. Obviously, when he did it with the Spurs and got out of San Antonio, then he went to Toronto and did it in Toronto. But I was the first one who said it last year when the Raptors won the championship. I said, Toronto got no credit for the championship. I said, hey, listen, if Clay Thompson was healthy for the end of Game 6, I thought Golden State would have won that game, put it in a Game 7, and I would take Golden State's experience in a Game 7 over the Raptors at that time. And I think Golden State, even without Kevin Durant, could have won that NBA championship if Clay Thompson would have stayed healthy. With that being said, by the way, when uh, Golden State had Kevin Durant in Game 5, even for that little bit, it was a completely different series. So the question is, do we have to take away from number two success a little bit? Am I right, which I believe I am, on the fact that, you know, is that Raptors championship ain't a little bit? Just like we have to look at Golden State, you have to say, okay, is that 2015 championship a, a little tainted? Because obviously they lost the 3-1 lead to the Cavs the next year, and then they had to get Kevin Durant. And, you know, everybody believes that if the Warriors didn't have Kevin Durant, the Cavs could have two or three championships. Probably more than likely two, but who knows if Kyrie and LeBron break up if Durant doesn't go to Golden State, but that's not the gear or there. I think we have to really start looking at context in sports. You know, we mentioned all the time, I think Doc Rivers is a great coach. But the fact of the matter is, Doc Rivers is the Andy Reid of the NBA. Doc Rivers obviously has one championship. He broke through. Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, Ray Allen, and a rising Ray John Rondo in 2008 over the late great Kobe Bryant. Rest in peace, Mamba. You're on my wall right here in 2008 in six games. But since then, man, since Doc Rivers, man, did they have some classic blown leads. Let's go to 2010 when he was still in Boston. Obviously, a 3-2 in 2010 over Kobe's Lakers. He loses that series in seven. I believe it was 2014 or 2015. 
up 3-1 against James Arden and the Houston Rockets. That was so long ago, by the way. That team had Josh Smith uh, on the Rockets, I believe. He was either on the Rockets or Clippers. I don't recall that, but I just remember that because I think he was on Houston. And he shot the lights out of the ball in Game 6 in that series. I believe it was 2015 because that was the same year they faced Golden State in the Western Conference Finals. Clippers were up three games to one with Lob City, and that team was really good. People forget that team had J.J. Roddick, Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan. I believe Matt Barnes was the starting small forward on that team. Taking on the Houston team with really James Harden, as I mentioned, Josh Smith. And I, I think Capella was on that team, but he was a young Capella, and that was about it. And they blew that lead. And now you take a look at this lead. Now, I know everybody's saying, oh, it's bubble ball. The bubble is different, and I've advocated that, man, it is not different. I've advocated this all along. The bubble is not different. I understand there's no home field advantage, but in my opinion, when you're on a neutral field, it even amplifies the most, the better teams to most of the time win the series. This isn't like football where it's one game. It is the best out of seven series. If you beat a team four times out of seven games, you psychologically have the momentum over them. And this is what I would worry about if I'm the Lakers against Denver, is that Denver psychologically now feels that they can come back from anything. Obviously, they came back down 3-1 against the Utah Jazz. Now they're coming back down 3-1 against the Los Angeles Clippers. And my goodness, man, Jokic, Jokic can pass the basketball, he can score the ball, he can rebound the ball. He is my perfect traditional big man center. Now, I know, obviously, he cannot jump that well, but, hey, listen, man, I don't care if he can't jump on the floor. He makes plays when he's not on the floor. I will say this. For Denver, I do think the Lakers are a bad matchup, only because I think JaVale McGee and Dwight Howard can body up Jokic. Again, because Jokic can't jump, JaVale McGee, I know he can't shoot, but he's a great defender. Same thing with Dwight Howard, and I think that the Nuggets are going to have a hard time with the Lakers. But let's go back to the Clippers, man. You know, I know everybody's been saying over the last couple days, you know, did Kawhi Leonard make a mistake going to the Clippers? Well, I want you guys to remember this. Originally, Kawhi Leonard did not want Paul George as his co-star. He wanted Jimmy Butler. And obviously, we see what Jimmy Butler's doing in Miami. I'm going to talk about him in a little bit. Jimmy Butler just knows who he is. He wants his own team. Get out of the way. He wants guys that can compete art. And he can get to the finals in the East without joining up with anybody. Bam Ayabayo has just broken out out of nowhere. And they have great coaching with their exposure. So Kawhi Leonard knew he needed a co-star to go up against Anthony Davis and LeBron in L.A. And he chose a guy who choked with Russell Westbrook and choked by himself in Indiana against the Heat with LeBron and then obviously with the Cavs who had LeBron at the time as well. But I just have never been a fan of Paul George. You guys know that. And, man, we've seen it now. We've seen Russell Westbrook and James Arden choke together after switching coasters. Now we see Paul George choke with Kawhi Leonard. And, man, maybe it's not just Kawhi Leonard. Maybe it's just bad luck. I don't know what it is, but the Clippers, they have some rethinking to do. The question is, do they bring back Doc Rivers or not? Do they elevate Ty Lue to that head coaching position? I really feel like that's a possibility because Doc Rivers has blown a lot of leagues in the past, and we'll see what the Clippers do. It'll definitely be interesting moving forward.
But let's go ahead now to the big five news stories of the week. Here we go, starting with number one. The Big Ten is back, baby. It's starting at over 24th, and I'm starting to hear rumblings of match action possibly coming back. Obviously, I'm here at Kent State. That, that would be huge for Kent State to at least get some games in. You know what? I will say this. I am happy for Ohio State. However, at the end of the day, I don't think it makes a big difference, you know, for, for any of these other teams, Michigan, Penn State, besides the fact that they're going to be able to play. You know, I'm, I'm not really interested in those teams, but I think it's a big boost for college football just because Ohio State is back. I'll have more to touch about the Big Ten in the second hour. Next news story, we got Michael Thomas out with an ankle injury. He's going to be out at least three weeks, according to head coach Sean Payton. Now, I'm starting to hear some reports that he might play Monday night against the Raiders. I doubt it. Again, there's a big question with this because, you know, why was Michael Thomas even in the game? That Saints Bucks game was really over with by the time Michael Thomas got that injury. And it just points to the fact that, you know, Sean Payton wanted to run up the score. I don't agree with it. And now it costs him. Now maybe Sean Payton don't think about taking a couple knees in that situation next time. Big news out of Houston. Mike D'Antoni is not coming back to Houston. Mike D'Antoni is out. He's rumored to become the next head coach of the Philadelphia 76ers, which I would obviously not like. I don't think he's a good fit there. I think Mike D'Antoni's a terrible coach. And we'll see if Houston gets better now that he's out of there. Allen Robinson won down in Chicago. And this, to me, is kind of shocking because he played well on Sunday. And Ben Stravinsky made a big comeback against the Lions. And then he said he wants out. Allen Robinson's a contract deer. He's one of the best wide receivers in the NFL. If I'm Chicago, I don't trade him. I try to work out a deal because I think that this team, if they find their quarterback, you know, I think they could be better than Minnesota. I'm not that eye on the Vikings this year. Green Bay is going to eventually fall off in a couple years. If Chicago just waits one or two years, man, if Ben Trubisky can be their guy, they're right there. I wouldn't trade Allen Robinson. And finally, of course, Last night, as we saw on the broadcast, Joe Buck winning the Pete Roselle Award for Excellence in Radio and TV Broadcasting. He's going into the NFL Hall of Fame for 2020. As much as we make fun of Joe Buck, he's one of the most legendary announcers of all time. And shout out to Joe Buck. Your influence is on me and all over the world. Congratulations. And obviously, his legacy will be trying. Forever in Canton, Ohio, when hopefully we can have a full ceremony with fans and we have a vaccine in 2021. Alright, well, coming up next, the Indians, they finally did it. They broke out last night, scoring over 10 runs, and Shane Beaver was back on the mound. But after the eight-game losing streak, can the Indians finally turn it around? That plus... We are talking Tom Brady versus Cam Newton. I almost said Cam Brady. I apologize. We're going to compare their week one resumes. Obviously, Cam played well. Brady played all right. And the season outlook now for New England in Tampa Bay. That is coming up, bottom of the hour, here on Brands World. Hope you're enjoying on this Friday. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back here to Brands World on this Friday. Bottom of one, and as I mentioned... We're starting with the Indians snapping their eight-game losing streak last night, defeating the Detroit Tigers. Of course, Shane Bieber on the mound. 
masterful performance, another over 10K strikeout for Bieber. And I gotta say, man, after a rough week in Cleveland, obviously with the Indians losing, and then the Browns getting destroyed by Baltimore, what a night last night for Cleveland sports. And I think the Indians now can hopefully get off the schneid. Now, let me just say this really quickly. I had the Indians entering the season going 37-23. and 23, And I predicted that that would win the American League Central. And right now, the Indians are 27-23. and 23. So in order for my prediction to be right, the Indians would have to win the rest of their 10 games. They obviously only have 10 games left in their schedule. Three against Detroit, four against the White Sox at home Monday for Thursday, and then at home against the Tigers, or excuse me, against the Pirates for Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So this game, this series against Detroit here Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and obviously last night is their last four road games of the season. And these next seven home games for the Indians may be their last seven regular season games at home, and it might be their last home games of the season because as we know now, the MLB players are officially going to the bubble. The American League will be in Los Angeles and San Diego. The National League will be in Texas and in Houston. And of course, the wild card round will be at the team's own ballpark, but it doesn't look like the Indians are going to get one of those top four seeds. Now, I will say this. The Indians don't have any games left with Minnesota. And because Minnesota won the head-to-head series, they're technically up four games on the Indians. Even though, even though you know, Minnesota's only three games ahead because they won the head-to-head series, you give them the tiebreaker. And so with ten games left, the Indians are going to have to, you know, shuffle it around and make sure they're at least four games better than Minnesota in that span. So, again, if the Indians go 10-0, and Minnesota, at the very least, would have to go six and four, so it doesn't look like the Indians are gonna get that quote unquote home field advantage. So it looks like next Sunday's game against the Pittsburgh Pirates will be the last game at home for the 2020 season. But I think the Indians, I talked about this last week with Sean Fitzgerald. Of course, Sean, the BSR sports director, a WKSU news intern, plus a co host of Best of Mike Sports Talk, along with Andrew Orlando. I talked about this with him, and you know, I said I think the warm weather is a disadvantage to, to the Indians, and Sean disagreed with me, saying that the Indians typically do play better in the summer months. But I want to make this point really quickly. So in 2016, the Indians, 50 games in, were 26 and 24. They obviously ended up going on that huge run and winning the, or excuse me, going to the World Series. Why did I say winning the World Series? I have no idea. But the Indians entering last night's play were 26 and 23. So a game worse. They obviously, you know, 27-23 is better than 26 and 24. But it's very similar when the Indians won the 2016 World Series. I just said one again. What the hell am I saying? I should be fired for this. The Indians made it to, obviously, games on the World Series. I think we won it in my mind. Oh, my God, what the hell did I just say? But, obviously, the Indians, you know, we, we think they struggle often early in the season, and they do. But they got off to such a great odd start that this seven-game losing streak is definitely, you know, a cause for concern. But, in my opinion, I think the Indians, with the pitching staff we have, Shane Bieber, Zach Pleasant, Tristan McKenzie, Carlos Carrasco. You know, you could even throw Plugo in there. Aaron Savali, whoever you want your fifth starter to be. 
Man, I think this team is loaded with pitching. And as we know, pitching is the name of the game. I think the Indians have a legitimate shot to win the World Series this year. I really do. We know in baseball, all it takes is for you to get into the playoffs. We saw it the Nationals last year at the trade deadline were under 500 and ended up winning the World Series. Look, I know that this, you know, is, is a different season. I know it's only a 60-game season. I know the stats are messed up. I know there should be an asterisk. I know it all. But with that being said, I really do feel confident in the Indians. The question is going to be, can this offense really step up? Does this offense have the ability to score enough runs for this team to produce enough to win postseason games? Because we know we're going to have to go up against teams like the White Sox, like the Rays, like the Twins, like the Yankees, like the A's. And they score runs. So the Indians are going to have to score three, four, five runs a game in, in order to win. We're very confident in this pitching staff. My one worry with the pitching staff would be, you know, do they have enough experience? Is that please not going to be able to pitch in the postseason? Will Tristan McKenzie, Will Aaron Zavali, whoever your number three starter, Carlos Carrasco possibly because of the veteranship, will he be able to go? You're very confident in Shane Bieber because to me it doesn't matter, you know, if he's young or old. The stuff Shane Bieber has, he's definitely going to be the American League Cy Young. I mean, the guy, I think Matt and Rick, you know, even said on the broadcast last night, Shane Bieber had no-hit stuff last night. That's how good he was. Shane Bieber should struggle with that knuckle curve and the slider and the ability to get people out striking out, out of the strike zone. The Shane Bieber is just out of this world, and any time Shane Bieber is on the mound for the Indians, you feel like you have a chance to win no matter who you're playing. And I think that gives the Indians an advantage in the wild card series because it's obviously a best of three. You only have to win two games. And so ideally for me, if Bieber goes in game one, you get that victory, then you go with your next best pitcher. And the question really is, who do you trust? In my opinion, it's probably Aaron Savali because Aaron Savali or Zach Plezak are probably the most consistent. Carlos Carrasco hasn't been that consistent. And Tristan McKenzie is way too young. He's already got hurt a couple of times out there on the mound in terms of the runs he's given up. But Savali isn't very consistent. You know, when when he goes out there, he usually gets up three runs or less. And if the Indians give him run support, he usually gets that W. So I'd be happy with Savali. And then maybe you go with Plezak in game three. I'm just not trusting Carrasco, man. I know he had a great start last time. But to me, Cookie's getting a little bit up there in age. You know, he's a little hit or miss. I think Plezak or Savali would be more consistent. And then when you get into the postseason, we all know Terry Francona. And again, God bless Terry Francona. I think it really shows right now that the Indians are missing his leadership during that during that horrible losing streak because the Indians were just making bad errors. They were looking for leadership. And Sandy Elmar even admitted that they need Tito back. So then it doesn't tell you that Sandy Elmar... The acting manager knows that Terry needs to come back. I don't know what does. But with that being said, I am worried about how, you, you know, these guys like Plezak. You know, I think Plucko, we think Plucko, dude. I think Plucko could be fine coming out of the bullpen. But, you know, possibly a guy like Tristan McKenzie or somebody like that coming out of the bullpen. We haven't really seen them do it. Obviously, we know how Tito likes to do it. In the postseason, starters go four or five innings. 
the bullpen comes in for the last four, tries to shut the door. So, you know, the Indians, as long as they have pitching, they have a legitimate shot. But again, Santana, Ramirez, who had two home runs last night, Lindor, Cesar Hernandez, Frambiel Reyes, Tyler Naquin, those are the guys you're going to have to rely on in inning. And if we can just get something out of Mercado, Roberto, Naylor, to Shields, who's just been an awful center fielder, then I think the Indians will be okay. This postseason's obviously going to be very interesting. I'm very interested to see how the Indians do. Well, I guess that last week there's a very real possibility the, the Indians could get eliminated within the first two days. There's also a very real possibility the Indians could go on a wild playoff run. It's just the way baseball works. Really quickly, let's take a look at the American League standings. The White Sox and Rays have clinched playoff spots. The Rays are a half a game back of the White Sox for the number one seed in the American League. Right now, if the season ended today, the Indians would be going to Tampa Bay. And again, Tampa Bay has the highest strikeout rate in baseball. Second is the Detroit Tigers, and the Indians always own. So in my opinion, if the Indians can just get a couple runs off Tampa Bay, that's a good matchup for, for the Indians. To be honest, if you're looking at the Indians, to me, the only shot they realistically have is at 7 or 18. So they're probably either going to play Tampa Bay, Chicago, or Minnesota. The way I think this is going to work is I think it's going to be Chicago. They're going to end up playing. For some reason, I have that feeling. Tampa Bay might overtake Chicago as the one, and I think it'll be two versus seven. White Sox against the Indians. But I think Minnesota is going to get the four. I think the Yankees are going to get the five. And I think Houston, under 500, is going to get the sixth spot in the American League playoffs. And I just hope that, you know, the Indians can win two games. And then once they get to, to the ALDS, you know, we'll see what happens. They're possibly going to play probably the Astros or the A's would be my best guess. In that AL West matchup, I would take Oakland. I think the Indians would play the A's in the ALDS. But, you know, we'll see. And then nationally, the Dodgers have gone to the playoffs. Obviously, they're the best team in baseball at 36-15. and 15. Cubs lead the Central. Braves lead the East. I want you to pay very attention to the second place spot in the NL Central because the Cardinals and Reds are in a virtual tie. Cardinals are 22-24. and 24, Reds are 25-26. and 26. Obviously, the Cardinals are trying to make up all these lost games due to COVID with double errors. I think the Cardinals are going to wear out. The Reds are starting to make a surge, and the Reds might be able to get that second place in the NL Central. There's no way they catch the Chicago Cubs. But if the Reds are able to catch them, they have good pitching. They have pretty good inning. They, they're going to take on the Braves. And, you know, the Reds, they may be the surprise team in the postseason if they can get in and do some damage. Giants and Phillies would be your wild card teams. I think the Phillies are starting to fall apart a little bit. I think they would lose easily to the Dodgers. We mentioned it last week. Can Clayton Kershaw pitch well in the postseason will be the question. My two favorites in the National League, to be honest with you, are the Dodgers and Cubs. My two favorites in the American League right now would be the A's and the Rays. I don't trust Chicago's pitching. But I got to tell you, the Indians are a dark horse, like we keep saying, if they can get enough run support. All right, well, I want to move on here because it's something everybody's going to be talking about all season. It's the Tom Brady versus Cam Newton watch. Tom Brady and Tampa versus Cam, versus Cam Newton. I almost said Cam Brady again. Man, what is going on with me today, ladies and gentlemen? 
I know you guys might think I'm high or drunk. Trust me, I'm not. I'm just stumbling over my words today. But Cam Newton versus Tom Brady, New England versus Tampa Bay. And let's take a look at how they did week one. We're going to keep track of this all season long, obviously, as football fans. Cam Newton was 15 of 19, 79% completion percentage, 155 yards, zero touchdowns, zero picks. For a passer rating of 100.7, but he also ran the ball 15 times for 75 yards, which in my opinion is way too much. This New England offense is definitely the way I think we all thought it was. Very conservative. They don't have a lot of deep weapons. They're going to run the football. They're going to play good defense. And they made Fitzmagic into some mistakes on Sunday. Meanwhile, Tom Brady aired it out. 23 to 36, which is only 64% completion percentage. Not great. Two DDs, two picks, even though I thought the one pick was on Mike Evans. The one throw I'll give you to the flat was a bad throw by Brady. It was a terrible throw. He should have never made it. He finished up at a rating of 78.4. But I know everybody's going Tom Brady, and everybody's saying that, you know, this Tom Brady, Buccaneers, Bruce Arians offense doesn't work because Tom Brady sees the game from short to long, and Bruce Arians sees the game from long to short. I will say, I think there's going to be a compromise here. Uh, I think Tampa Bay is going to turn into more Brady's offense than Bruce Arians' offense. I don't think uh, Brady's going to throw the football down the field a ton. But I do think we're going to see more than last year with New England. And as we mentioned, Tom Brady does have all the weapons in the world. But Chris Godwin is in concussion protocol. Mike Evans is still dealing with that ankle injury. So he's really just got, you know, Scotty Miller, little slot Scotty Miller, who's his new Julian Edelman. He's got those running backs and Ronald Jones and Leonard Fournette and LaShawn McCoy if he ever gets it into the ball game. You know, obviously Gronk, OJ Howard, those two tight ends. So I think dealing with injuries right now, I think it's best for Tampa Bay to really run the football, take the pressure off Tom Brady. But I didn't necessarily think Tom Brady played that bad on Sunday. I'll be honest, I really did not. Like I said, I thought the couple throws got away from him. But the fact of the matter is, I thought Brady played overall decent. Could have made some better throws that kept him in the ball game. But Timmy Bay made some huge mistakes. They made a special teams mistake, and that's what allowed the Saints to really blow the game open. But, you know, we talked about this, ladies and gentlemen. It's week one. It's a new team. We know Tom Brady has to figure out these weapons. It's going to take time. Just like we talked about the Browns earlier. Kevin Stefanski, new systems, going to take time. I talked about this last week. It's why I truly believe that coaching and teams that have been together longer have an advantage this year because of COVID, no preseason, limited training camp. It's going to take time for these guys to get on the same page. But by midseason, Tampa Bay should be in midseason form, and I think that they will be a dangerous playoff team. Now, New England... And I'm going to talk about this coming up in the next segment because it's going to be the top of the hour. And I'm going to give you guys my best bets for week two. And by the way, New England is included in that. I'm not saying which side I'm going to go as New England has to go to Seattle this week on Sunday Night Football. But I do still think this New England offense is very limited. Yes, they have Tony Michelle. Yes, they have James White. But they have a broken down Julian Edelman who's their best wide receiver. They don't have a tight end. They don't really have any outside threat. And it's mostly just Belichick saying, you know, I'm going to play good defense. I'm going to keep the ball control. And that's all fine. 
you know, when you're taking on the Miami Dolphins. I knew this was an easy win for New England. But now you're getting into the hard part of the schedule. And, you know, to me, Miami's legit. They're not there yet. They're an 8-9 win team. But Seattle's a whole different level. I think Seattle's a 12-13 win football team this season. And I think New England is in for a real test Sunday. I will say this. If New England does win this game, I'm going to have to reevaluate New England. If they do win this game, because I've heard everybody tell me, Brandon don't doubt Bill Belichick. Brandon don't doubt Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick is still the best head coach of all time. He's going to figure this out. And I've said, you know, even great head coaches have, you know, blemishes on their resume. For Belichick, it seems like talent evaluation is his blemish, especially when it comes to the draft and making trades, by the way. I'm not doubting that Belichick can coach football. He's one of the best head coaches in the National Football League. But Belichick doesn't seem like he can draft wide receivers, nor does he seem like he believes in wide receivers, nor does he seem like he believes in the quarterback. It seems like his ego to me is almost like, hey, I'm the best defensive guy of all time. I know what I'm doing on defense. We're going to win everything we do with our defense. And to me, in the new age NFL, you can't really do that anymore. I think it's a huge mistake. My personal opinion, I think New England's still somewhere between a 6-8 and eight win football team. I'm not going to overreact. I think Tampa Bay's still a 9-11 to 11 football team. And as I said on the top of the show with the Browns, we do not know this season, week one, what's different and what's not different. In terms of, you know, it's week one. Will these trends stay the same? Will they not stay the same? I think something to watch this weekend in particular is every road team that was on the road is coming back home this weekend. Every home team that was at home in week one is going to be on the road. So every team will have one, one home game and one road game. I imagine they did that purposely because of the virus. But I think it's something to watch out for. And by week five, we should know who the legit teams are in the National Football League. Obviously, Kansas City and Baltimore are the favorites in the AFC. Alrighty, well, coming up next, it is the top of our two here on the show. We're going to be going over our top five bets for week two. I was only two out of five last week. 40% is not good enough, but I think I got better bets this week. I'm excited, man. If you guys are betters, make sure to place these bets because I think some of these are really easy. I think the better football team, for some reason, are either low favorites or big underdogs this week. I don't understand it. Plus, in our two, we're going to be building a fantasy team once again for the waiver wire. We're going to be going over everything going on in the NBA bubble. Plus... We will talk about the best head coaches in the National Football League because today in the last segment we're going to be picking the Week 2 games just based on who is the better coach. Not based on personnel, not based on talent, not based on anything like that. I'm not taking the team. I'm taking the coach. So we're going to compare next week when we come back here. Okay, because coaching really matters in the NFL as much as we think. That's why we're doing this exercise. We'll do it. As the last segment today, so much to get to the fun first hour of the show. Again, coming back, the two best bets in Arizona. I would bet if I was betting this. Unfortunately, on the Browns and the Cowboys, as well as the Denver Broncos, I thought they would beat Tennessee. 
obviously I was always right, but thanks to Stephen Kanakowski, that was not the case. But ladies and gentlemen, I am much more confident about these bets this week. So if you guys are a betting man, these are the teams I would bet on in week two of the National Football League season. And here we go. So, my first bet of the week, as you guys can see on the screen here, the Rams and the Eagles. In my opinion, because this is a pick'em game, and I love my Philadelphia Eagles this week. In Doug Peterson's career against Sean McVay, he is 2-0. Aaron Donald, zero career stacks against the Eagles. It was just announced that Nate Ehrenberg will start at right guard, and that Lane Johnson will play at right tackle. That should help this offensive line a lot more. Carson Wentz should be able to stay protected. Jalen Rager getting deep down the field along with the John Jackson, John I Tower. We have a whole lot of speed, plus working in the 12 personnel with Zach Ertz and Dallas Goddard in the middle of the field. I think this is a good matchup. And Doug Peterson's always great coming off of a loss. Bounce back in late. I think my Eagles in a pick em here. Defeat the Rams in a quote unquote upset. Next game, we got the Bills and the Dolphins. Miami is giving five and a half. They're plus five and a half. I'm going to take Miami outright here. I think Miami upsets Buffalo. Look, I love what I saw last week against Josh Allen, but he was thinking on a bad Jets team. And Brian Flores is going to add these Dolphins. Oh, I'm in play. We know Ryan Fitzpatrick is hot and cold, but I really do think that Fitzmagic will have a good game this week. I think the Dolphins are a much better improved football team. And in order for me to believe that, they have to win this game. Or an 0 2 start is not ideal for Miami if they want to compete for a wild card playoff spot. So I think Miami has to win this game. Plus, I think Buffalo takes a step back a little from last year. I think the Bills' offense is just too simplistic. As much as I love Josh Allen, I still don't think their their offense is great. I think Miami, with those hometown fans, I believe they're going to be a lot in the stadium. So I like Miami to win this game. Next game, we got the Vikings. This one, I don't understand. The Vikings are three-point underdogs against the Colts. Look, as much as we like the Colts, as much as I like Frank Reich, as much as I love T.Y. Hilton, as much as I like Bill Rivers, the Vikings are just a better football team, man. They got a pretty good defense. They got weapons. They got Kirk Cousins. I mean, I think the Vikings here go in and beat the Colts, who are an old football team, are going to need to run the football with Najim Hines, and I don't think they will be able to do it. I think the Vikings, Mike Zimmer is always good off losses. I don't think Mike Zimmer is the greatest coach in the world. I think the Colts are coming off a bad loss to the Jaguars. They'll look to respond, but you know what? The Colts are one of those hit and miss teams. I think the Vikings are the overall better football team. That's why I'll take the Vikings. I alluded to this in the last segment. Patriots have Seattle. Seattle's a minus four favorite. I'm going to take Seattle to win by more than four. I still don't trust New England. That offense is still way too simplistic for my liking, and I think Seattle's defense is one of the best in the league. We saw last week Seattle's offense when they put the ball in Russell Wilson's hands, good things happened. Russell Wilson is an up-to quarterback in the National Football League, in my opinion, right behind Patrick Mahomes. I think he's better than Lamar Jackson, and I don't even think you could argue that right now. Russell Wilson's doing more with less than any quarterback in the National Football League, and I think Seattle is still looking for revenge for what happened in Super Bowl 49. I don't think this game is particularly close. I don't think New England's that good of a football team. 
Either they just got lucky with being at home and taking on a new team somewhat in Miami in week one. Seattle was well coached. They're put together well. They had the better quarterback. I'm going to take Seattle to win by at least five to cover here. And I'll take the minus four. And then finally, to me, this one's easy. Baltimore minus six and a half going to Houston. Now, I know what a lot of people are going to say. Baltimore won big last week against the Browns. The Texans got killed last week against the Chiefs. So, naturally, this is going to flip. Houston's going to pull off the upset at home. I know what a lot of you are thinking. But this is what I'm thinking, man. That Texans defense last year got shredded by the Ravens. Yet it was in Baltimore. But they still could not stop the run. Now Baltimore has an even more lethal threat in J.K. Dobbins. Lamar Jackson looks better than last year. That Houston offense isn't going to be the same without DeAndre Hopkins. I don't think they're going to be able to run the football with David Johnson. I don't love Houston's outlook this year. They had a tough schedule to start. They got to play the Chiefs, the Ravens, and the Steelers the first three weeks. I predicted them to go 0-3 in those games. I still think that. I don't think this Houston team is a very good football team. I think Bill O'Brien is a terrible coach. I think their defense is bad. And I think Baltimore here rolls by at least a touchdown. And I will take Baltimore minus six and a half. So again, to recap here, I have the Rams and the Eagles in a pick'em. I will take my Eagles at home. I have the Vikings who are plus three against the Colts. I had the Vikings winning that game outright. Miami was plus five and a half against Buffalo. I have Miami winning that game outright. I have Seattle covering their minus four against New England. And I have Baltimore covering their minus six and a half against Houston. These are to me the best five bets of the weekend. There's a lot of tough games out there, man, this weekend. Giants-Bears. You know, Packers-Lions, the Lions seem to always play close games, even though I don't think they will. Bucks-Anthers, nine points is a lot to give to Ava Bay. So there's a lot of interesting bets out there this weekend. However, I believe if you place these bets, you will win some money. However, if you listen to me last week, you would only get two out of five. I badly missed the Browns and Ravens. I almost got Denver right, and I almost got Dallas right. So I was close. Easily, what I said was my best bets of the weekend last weekend were Seattle and Arizona. I got those right. This weekend, I'm saying my best bets are the Rams and the Eagles. I'll take the Eagles and the Patriots, Seahawks. I will take Seattle. Those, to me, are the two best bets, followed by Baltimore and Houston. Then Vikings, Colts. Then I would say my least favorite out of these in Bills are Dolphins. But I just have a feeling, man, that Miami's a better football team. And I think they'll be able to come back. Plus five and a half. I think Miami has to win this game, as I mentioned, to stay in wildcard contention, and I think that they will. Now let's move on to the NBA bubble because I already talked about it earlier in the show how the Clippers flat out choked against the Nuggets. Obviously, Lakers Nuggets start tonight, but ladies and gentlemen, the Miami Heat, the Miami Heat out of all teams, has taken a 2-0 lead on the Boston Celtics. And this is shocking to me because you guys know I flat out said Miami isn't going to make it past the second round. If Indiana and Victor Oladipo and their guys healthy, I wasn't even sure they were going to make it past Indiana. But here's Miami up to well in the Eastern Conference Finals. They took out Milwaukee. They took out Indiana. And now they're taking out Boston. And there's a report out there 
that apparently Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart got into a backstage altercation after the game and they had to be separated. It looks like Boston could be falling apart and Miami could be on their way to the NBA Finals, which is just absolutely insane, which means we all better be Lakers fans because I know that we all want the Lakers and the East to play in the NBA Finals or Lakers Celtics and see obviously the tradition or Lakers Heat. LeBron going up against his former coach, Eric Spostra, and his former owner, Pat Riley. But, man, the Miami Heat, man, I just got to say, they play hard. They play tough. They play physical. I mean, they're just a well-coached basketball team. They don't even want to starve. They have Jimmy Butler, who's turning into a superstar. They have a star in Bam Adebayo. But I said, in order to win a championship... I believe you need that third star. I don't know who it is on Miami. Could it be Gordon Dragic? Yes. Could it be Duncan Robinson? Yes. Uh, or could it be Tyler Hero? Yes. But Miami to me is a nice story. I don't think they're a championship team. They're like the Tennessee Titans in the NFL from last year. Like they're a nice story. And I said it with the Clippers, man. Here's the thing, though. I don't believe in the bubble is going to go different. I know the bubble is hard. I know that these players cannot see their families. I know the families came in for the second round and stuff, but I know it's been really hard for these players in the bubble. They've been there for over two months. But listen, at the end of the day, you're in the bubble to focus on basketball. And you have seven games against the same opponent. You can watch film. Everybody is in the same situation. The Nuggets were in the same situation as the Clippers. The Jazz were in the same situation as the Nuggets. Rockets, Thunder, Lakers, Blazers, whatever the case was, everybody has been in the same situation. And the teams that can adapt the best have won, and the coaching has really stood out. Man, Nick Nurse, Brad Stevens, Eric Spolstra, by far the three best coaches in the Eastern Conference, out-coaching Mike Bolton Ogre by a half a ton mile. In the semifinals, that was Eric Spolster, by the way, and that Brad Stevens-Nick Nurse coaching match has been incredible. That game came down to the wire last night. Obviously, Miami able to pull away. But the thing I found interesting here with the bubble is this. Every quote-unquote road team won the Boston-Toronto series, and so are the road teams seem like they've been winning in the postseason. We've seen Denver win two out of three quote-unquote road games. You know, down 3-1 to the Clippers to come back. And now they're going to face the Lakers. But this is going to be a whole different task for the Clippers in dealing with Kawhi Leonard, the quiet assassin, who, as I mentioned earlier, I could make the argument now, once again, that Raptors championship was tainted. He wasn't the best player on the floor. You know, he won finals MVP against the E in 2014. He wasn't the best player on the floor in that series. That was Tim Duncan. And you can make the huge case that Kawhi Leonard made a mistake joining the Clippers, especially choosing Paul George as his running mate. But what I've seen out of the Lakers, and I've said this multiple times on this show, Anthony Davis has impressed me this postseason. I am worried about, though, can the Lakers find that third score? Will it be Kyle Kuzma? Will it be KCP? Will it be Rajon Rondo? who has flat out flashed. He was excellent in the Houston series. Excellent. I can't complain. And I do think this is a bad matchup for Denver, as I mentioned earlier. 
because of the fact I think that they should play JaVale McGee and Dwight Howard in this series. I think they can take on Jokic because Jokic can't jump. That's his flaw in the game. We mentioned how Ben Simmons can't shoot. Well, Jokic can't jump. So you have JaVale McGee and Dwight Howard, who can't really score the ball, but they're two terrific rim defenders and are athletic centers. I think that will be Denver's downfall. The Lakers also have great backcourt defensive point guards. And then on Caruso, John Rondo, and Danny Green. I think they get and Jamal Murray and Gary Harris. I think this is a bad matchup for Denver. I got the Lakers in five. Denver may push it to six. Here's what I'm worried about. I think Denver could win tonight's game because we saw the Lakers have lost game one at home, quote-unquote, in the first two series. We mentioned, I'll have to look this up, how many road games teams have won versus how many home teams games have won in the bubble. But here's the thing. The Lakers usually use game one as a field game, and obviously they've won four straight against the Blazers and Rockets after that. But the thing is, right, is the Nuggets now feel comfortable. The Nuggets can score and play against anybody. They know they're never out of a series. And LeBron knows this. You have to put the Nuggets away. And obviously this is a rematch of the 2009 Western Conference Finals between the Lakers and Nuggets. And each Celtics, who can remember those classic series with LeBron's Eat going up against the Big Three in Boston. This feels like good organizations. Miami. Boston, you know, the Lakers, and Denver for the most part has been a really good basketball team. The final four of you notice are made up of really good organizations. They've adapted here in the bubble. They have great coaching, and the NBA Finals should be excellent. And unfortunately for us, we're not going to get the Battle of Los Angeles, but it is what it is. My prediction now is it will be the Lakers and Heat in the NBA Finals, and the Lakers will win that in five games. My prediction before the series was the Lakers and Boston, but Boston down 2-0, and with the internal fighting, I'm just not sure about Boston anymore, man. I think Miami, again, they're like Tennessee, man. They're the Cinderella story of the NBA. They're not a real championship team, and you cannot convince me that bubble ball is different. We see it in the NFL every year. We saw it with the Giants when they won both their Super Bowls, getting a little bit lucky, and I just cannot believe the NBA bubble is that quote-unquote different. I know there's no home field advantage, but at the end of the day, you have seven games. If you beat a team four games out of seven, you're just the better team. I'm sorry. You're either better coach, you're better executed, whatever it is, you did a lot of things better than the team across from you in that series. That is an undisputable fact. Also, talking about Giannis really quickly, it was reported that Giannis Antetokounmpo had a three-hour lunch. Which, by the way, that is a long lunch. But he had a three-hour lunch with the Milwaukee Bucks. And the Bucks said, Giannis, we promise we're going to build around you. And if I'm Giannis, I'm saying BS. Because I have a coach in my bulldozer that doesn't know how to manage game situations. I have a quote-unquote co-star in Chris Middleton who's not quash. He's more than a, than a num uh, number three, than a number two. And I have a bunch of role players like Kyle Corver and George L that just aren't quash in the postseason. So I know Giannis is from the European League. I know those European players can be sometimes soft because they like to listen to the coach. But if I'm Giannis, man, 
I would give Milwaukee one more year. See what they do. If they really are desperate. Heck, if I'm Milwaukee, I'd consider throwing Chris Middleton out there to maybe a guy like Bradley Beal. A real number two. Somebody that can play alongside Giannis and you increase that depth. But the Eastern Conference is not getting any easier. We already talked about Boston, Miami, Toronto. Those teams will all be coming back along with Milwaukee. Plus Philadelphia, if they get Mike D'Antoni, they'll be out of it because they just don't fit the system, which means they might be looking to trade Ben Simmons. That's not the here nor there. I wouldn't understand that fit. But with that being said, you know, Brooklyn's going to be back with KD and Kyrie. This, you know, and Steve Nash is their head coach. This, ladies and gentlemen, does not bode well for Milwaukee. To be honest with you, their championship window is starting to close. Their championship window was really this season. And if you're Giannis, man, I kept saying this last week to Sean, and I know we don't love the, the thought of it, but Golden State's going to have cap room next year. And Giannis could go there with Curry and Clay Thompson. The dynasty's back on. I don't think people would hate Giannis as much as Kevin Durant because, you know, when Kevin Durant left Russell Westbrook, I took it as he just wants to leave Russ and go win. When Giannis leaves Milwaukee, he's going to say, I can't leave in Milwaukee. He might come back to Milwaukee one day. It might be a LeBron James situation where he leaves for a team to go win a championship. Wins. Then he comes back, learns how to win, comes back to Milwaukee and wins them a championship. That would be a hell of a story. And right now it's probably his best after a championship because I just don't think the Milwaukee Bucks are going to be able to win a championship with Giannis Antetokounmpo and the Bucks the way this roster is currently constructed. I just don't see it. That being said, I do want to talk a little bit about the Big Ten really quickly uh, coming back. So, you know, I know everybody's excited around here. Ohio State's back. Michigan, Penn State, all the Big Ten teams are back. But I gotta say, man, I am a little bit worried. Uh, I think Ohio State is obviously the number two team in the college football nation right now. Right behind Kyle Clemson, but Ohio State has no room for error. They cannot lose a game. They have to win the Big Ten Championship. And even if they do, who's to say they're going to get into the college football playoff? I mean, you're going to have Clemson. You're going to have Alabama. You're going to have LSU. And then you look at that fourth team. It's probably going to be in Oklahoma or in Oklahoma State or in Georgia or in Ohio State or even possibly in Notre Dame. You can look at those teams. Who could possibly get into the college football playoff? So I think it's going to be a dogfight. And like I said, man, Ryan Day and Justin Fields, they're going to have to put up a lot of big numbers. They're going to have to destroy teams like Wisconsin and Penn State. Pretty good football teams. We should be getting the schedule by the end of the week here or early next week. And I'll be interested to see on that schedule where the Michigan game falls, where the Penn State game falls. Where the Wisconsin game falls if they do end up playing Wisconsin. Because these are big games for Ohio State. And they must win all their games. There are going to be no cupcakes. And in my opinion, they still may not make the college football playoff. Now, one of the things I wanted to bring up here is as a college football, not really much of a fan of the sport. I would say this is really good for college football. At least in my opinion. You know what I'm saying? Only because you can get rid of the cupcakes. 
to me, this should be the new norm in college football. We start up maybe a couple weeks later, maybe not at the end of October, maybe in the middle of October. We start college football, you just go maybe one non-conference game and the rest of the game conferences. We get out of the cupcake schedule and we get right into the meat of the action because Let's be honest, in September, when Ohio State's blowing out teams like Bowling Green 70-3, nobody's watching. I mean, it's great for the teams like Bowling Green and Kent State and these MAC teams that get to play these tough conferences because it gives them money. I understand that. But as a viewer, it's not that exciting. Okay? You see these lines are like 50, 50 points or 45 points or whatever they may be, and, like, you know it's going to be a blowout. It's not competitive. I know some people at the old radio station I used to work for wanted to go down to the Kent State-Alabama game this season, and I'm like, man, I don't want to go because I don't want to, you know, it'd be a cool experience to go to Alabama, but I'd rather go there and see the Gulf Shores than watch Kent State play football because I know it's going to be a 70-3 to beatdown. Like, let's be honest here. Bad football is not enjoyable football. When bad football is played right, like the Bengals and Browns are not considered two great teams, but you have a star in Joe Burrow, you have stars on the Browns, it makes for an entertaining game. When it's just a mismatch, one-on-one -on, -one on the field, it's not great, and I don't think it's good for the sport, besides the fact these lower teams get their money. And I would like to see this moving forward. By the way, a four-team SEC playoff with Georgia, Auburn, Alabama, LSU wouldn't be as bad as people think, in my opinion. You would see the best football on the planet. But you add in Clemson, Bama, LSU, Ohio State. To me, those are the four best football teams in the country. And I hope that that's the final four. Oklahoma should not get in this year because we know they're going to get destroyed again. Last year, we got three out of the best four. It comes down to me to either Alabama or Georgia for that final spot. And once Ohio State can put enough points up and impress the committee in order to make it into the college football playoff. Because I think Ryan Day is a much better in-game strategist than Urban Meyer. I think Justin Fields is miles better than Dwayne Haskins. I think Ohio State was a couple plays away from upsetting Clemson in the semifinal game. So I'm really interested to see what Ohio State has to do this year. But again, they got to come out fast. You know, we talked about this with the NBA, or with the MLB this season. It's a sprint, not a marathon. Well, with the college football, there's not really enough time to get in shape. From game one, you can't take your cupcake bowling green. You had to go out there, you had to destroy opponents. I think they'll just destroy Michigan, because I don't think Michigan really wants to play Ohio State. We saw the beat between Ryan Day and uh, Jim Arbaugh during the pandemic. Obviously, Ryan Day said he's going to hang 100 on Michigan. And he might, because Michigan's just that bad. I'm really disappointed in Jim Harbaugh. Some guys are just better pro football coaches than they are college football coaches, and I think that's the case with Jim. But at the end of the day, I'm happy for the Big Ten. You know, as I mentioned earlier, we'll see what the MAG does. And we'll see Kent State, Bowling Green, and Buffalo, and Ohio, and all those teams. We'll see if they can get a season going. It'd be good for the players to play, and it'd be good for the university to get some money. However, in Portage County here, uh, we just got upgraded to a red alert, so I don't know how safe that is, though I feel like the players are the most safe. So, you know, we'll see. It seems like we're getting back to normal. Hopefully, we'll get a vaccine soon. But at the end of the day, the Big Ten is back. It's good for college football. I'm happy for Ohio State. 
and watch out they get into the college football playoff because they are legitimately one of the best top four teams in the country. Alright, coming up next is the bottom of our table, and just like last week, we're going to be going for the ESPN waiver wire. Now, once again, I found players that are available in more than 50% of ESPN.com weeks, aka they are rostered on less than 50% of ESPN.com weeks. We're going to go through that and let you guys know who you guys need to pick up on the waiver wire. Plus, as I mentioned, we are going to be picking games for the National Football League this weekend. Just generally on the better football coach. We're not going to go into game plan, rosters, nothing like that. You're just going to look at the two coaches and say Doug Peterson versus Sean McVay. Bill Belichick versus Pete Carroll. Like, for instance, last night, Kevin Stefanski versus Zach Taylor. Who is the better coach? And then we're, we're going to see how that compares to the actual results of Sunday's game. Again, bottom hour one on this great Friday. A Browns victory Monday for you Browns fans here on Brandon's World. Hey guys, what's up? We're back here at the bottom of the hour here on Brandon's World. As I promised, we're going to be once again building a fantasy lineup for the ESPN waiver wire. And that being said, last week we struggled a little bit. We were projected 81.8 points, which isn't that great, but as I mentioned, Remember last week's team, we had Phil Rivers, Chris Thompson, Boston Scott, Larry Fitzgerald, Anthony Miller, Dallas Goddard, Bashard Perriman, the Seahawks D, and Brandon McManus. Here's how everybody did. Phil Rivers was projected 16.5 points. He got 14.82. Boston Scott was projected 8.5. He got 7.4. Chris Thompson really won us down against Andy. Remember, I thought he was neither edging back. I was wrong on that, and it ended up being James Robinson. Thompson only got 2.6 points. Larry Fitz was going to put up 8.9 projected. He put up 7.4. Anthony Miller had a good game against Detroit. He was projected 8.7. He put up 17.8. Dallas Carter was a big one for us, the Eagles' secondary tight end. I mentioned how the Eagles were going to get Dallas Carter involved, even though he's the second tight end. He projected 8.4. He got way over his projection at 24.1. Bashard Perriman, man, I thought he was going to be the slot receiver for the Jets. Turned out that job goes to Jameson Crowder, so I was wrong on Perriman. He was projected 8.4. He only got 4.8. The Seahawks, D, I thought they would stop Atlanta one or more. They ended up putting up zero points. And Brandon McManus, who was projected 7.6, only got two points against the Tennessee Titans. In total, we got 80.9. We were projected 81.8. So we were off by about 0 .7, 0 .8 points. But pretty damn close. Dallas Goddard saved our bacon. However, week one's always tough because you don't know how these roles are going to fill out. Obviously, late in the season, it's you know a lot easier to know who's going to get more playing time. This week, though, I think we have a very interesting team. So for this week at quarterback off the waiver wire, I'm going to go with Ryan Fitzpatrick. He is only rostered in 33.4% of ESPN.com waves. That means he is available in almost 66% of ESPN.com waves. He's playing the Jacksonville Jaguars. I know they beat the Colts last week, but as we mentioned, Phil Brewer still had a good game, 14 points. I think Ryan Daniel, Derek Henry, Tennessee, I think they run all over Jacksonville. 
and Aiden was projected 16.7 points, which is 0.2 points more than Phil Rivers. I think Aiden could get more than that against Jacksonville this week. Hello, Benny Snell for the Pittsburgh Steelers. He's rostered in 41.9% of ESPN.com weeks. I ended up just picking him up this morning. I don't think it matters if James Conner plays or not. Against these Denver Broncos, without Von Miller, you can totally tell that Ash Rush was not there for the Broncos. The Broncos were one of my odd picks going into the season. But as I said, the loss of Von Miller and Cortland Sutton really does hurt them. I think it hurt them even more this week. Steelers look really good. I know it was against the Giants, but the Steelers still look really good. I expect Benny Snell to get a good role against Denver. If you're looking for a running back, if you know somebody who has James Conner, James Conner is questionable. So you might just want to pick up Benny Snell as a handcuff. But if you're looking for somebody to play, Benny Snell might be your guy. He's projected 7.3 points. Hello, James Robinson. We just mentioned him. He seems like he's going to be the lead back in Jacksonville. Again, last week we weren't really going to be sure. Is it going to be James Robinson or is it going to be Chris Thompson? Jay Gruden is now their offensive coordinator in Jacksonville. Obviously, Chris Thompson was there with him in Washington, so I thought they would use him a little bit more. Turns out, James Robinson, as I mentioned, he's still only rostered in 46.9% of ESPN.com weeks, and he's projected 10.6 against Tennessee. And let's be honest, Tennessee, even with Javion Carney, even with Mike Vrabel, who's a great defensive head coach, they still got gassed by Philip Lindsay and Melvin Gordon in the run game for Denver. So I think James Robinson could be a nice play here. If you're looking for a running back, again, I expect Jacksonville to be behind. I expect Gardner Minshew to be able to throw the football. So if you're looking for a running back, again, this game, Tennessee Jacksonville, could be fantasy friendly. I always mention the bad teams like Cincinnati, Jacksonville. You almost want to pick those fantasy players. When you're looking for guys, guys like Iowa Boy, T. Higgins, maybe a Giovanni Bernard, a James Robinson here or there. If you're in a deep league or if you're looking for, you know, a backup guy, somebody to plug and play. Because you know these guys are going to be down a lot. And when they're down a lot, usually means they, they get the football because they're the only playmakers on these teams. You take a look at the other people I have this week. At wide receiver number one, I think this is easy. Paris Campbell, he's only rostered in 40% of ESPN.com weights right now, but he's projected 11.3 points against Minnesota. I mentioned, man, I think the Vikings win this game. However, the Vikings secondary is not as good as in years past. Paris Campbell is going to be their slot option. They still have Michael Pittman, they still have EYL, and they have Zach Pascal, but it seems like Phil Rivers. Loves those shit now. Underneath passes, as we know, it seems like Phil Rivers has a good connection with Paris Campbell out of Ohio State. I think Campbell could be a great option this weekend. My second receiver I'm picking is Danny Amendola. He's only rostered in 9% of ways. I know you guys don't even know probably who he plays for now. He actually plays for the Detroit Lions. And he's projected 9.8 against Green Bay. And listen, Detroit's probably not going to have Kenny Galladay again. Danny Amendola had a, had, a, had a good game last week against a good pair of secondary. Green Bay secondary is good as well. I expect all the attention with Galladay out to go to Marvin Jones. Opening up the middle of the field for Danny Amendola, who I think is a nice matchup. Even if Detroit gets killed. We know Detroit doesn't stay committed to the run. We know Matthew Stafford loves to throw the football. So 
So I think Danny Amendola has a good game here. At the flex, let's go to Russell Gage. If you guys don't know who Russell Gage is, he's the third wide receiver slash slot slash third option for Matt Ryan in Atlanta against Dallas. Figures to be a high-scoring game. Both these defenses stink, especially both these secondaries. I expect Atlanta Dallas to be a 35-30 shootout. Russell Gage put up two touchdowns and over 100 yards last week. Gage is only rostered in 15%. Of ESPN.com wins, you probably go snatch him right now. I love Russell Gage this week at Dallas for a flex option if you're looking for, for a third wide receiver or a running back. Russell Gage at flex is your perfect option. At tight end, how about Janu Smith? Now, I know everybody thought Delaney Walker was going to come back and have a, you know, take down Janu Smith's targets in Tennessee, but back to this Tennessee Jacksonville game. Ryan NL Janu Smith stat. Janu Smith is only in 25.6 of ESPN.com weeks. That's rostered. He's only rostered in 25.6 of ESPN.com weeks. I think I'd run, I think Jacksonville's gonna be terrible. I think Ryan NL more than likely is gonna throw a couple touchdown passes. Derek Henry's gonna run for a couple touchdowns. I think Janu Smith and his offense, Arthur Smith, offensive coordinator, loves to use the tight end. I think Janu Smith could have a big game. He had a big season last year down the stretch. When Delaney Walker went out, I think he continues in here against Jacksonville. Defensively out Arizona, they're only rostered in about 22% of ESPN.com weeks. They're taking on the Washington football team. And let me just say this. I know everybody's intrigued by Washington because they beat my Eagles last week. But ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you know this or not, but the Washington football team had six short fields last week. That means they started at the Eagles opposing 50 six times. They scored all six times. When they did not start at the 50, they did not score. This Arizona defense is much improved. I think Patrick Peterson takes away Terry McCorn. I don't think Washington moves the football that much. I know this Washington defensive line is good. But I think Iowa Murray's mobility, they have a better offensive line than what Philly had on Sunday. I think Arizona is a blowing out Washington here. I like Ron Rivera, but I'm still not sewn on Washington. I think Dwayne Askins struggles for a couple interceptions. The Eagles should have had a couple interceptions on Sunday that they dropped. So I love Arizona's defense going up here against Washington as a streamer this week. And by the way, Kicker, you have Ryan Suckup. He's only rostered at 11.6% of ESPN.com weeks. Going up against Carolina, we talk about this all the time. With Tom Brady, Buccaneers, Bucks offense, a great offense. Always means you're going to score points more than likely. And even if they don't score touchdowns, they're going to make it in the red zone a lot. So I like Ryan Suckup's upside against Carolina. He's projected 7.3 points. This week, we are projected to have 88.7 points in our lineup. I'll review the lineup one more time once again. It is Ryan Tannehill, Benny Snell, James Robinson, Paris Campbell, Danny Amendola, Janu Smith, Russell Gage, the Cardinals defense, and Ryan Suckup. They are again projected 88.7 points. And with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to go to our last segment of the day because we're going to be picking games 
based off the better head coach slash quarterback combination. Again, we are not looking at the teams, the rosters, anything like that. We're just going off coach slash quarterback. You know, with the Bengals last night, it's Zach Taylor and Joe Burrow versus Kevin Savansky, Baker Mayfield. I would have taken the Browns just because to me, Kevin Savansky is a better coach than Zach Taylor at this point. I know Kevin Savansky's a rookie, but I didn't see much last year from Zach Taylor. So I would have taken the Browns there, and I would have been right on that. Obviously, the Browns won. If you guys saw my tweet yesterday, I switched to the Bengals at the last segment. I just had a bad mojo, man. I had a bad night Wednesday night, so I usually feel like that's bad mojo on Thursday. So I switched my pick. Wasn't smart. I apologize for that, for all you guys are wishing I was right on everything. But, yeah, the Browns won last night. I would have picked that in this better coach slash QB combination. Oh, we look at the Rams and Eagles. My game Sunday. Sean McVay, Jared Goff, Eagles, Doug Peterson, Carson Wentz. I, I already mentioned this earlier. Doug Peterson still would in his career against Sean McVay. Carson Wentz has outplayed Jared Goff in the one game they played in L.A. in 2017. That was obviously the game that Carson Wentz got hurt. And to me, the Eagles offensive line should be better this week. Nate Ehrenberg will step in at right guard. Wayne Johnson will be a right tackle into the Jack Driscoll. So Wayne Johnson being back will up the Eagles a ton. Hornberg back at right guard will help a lot into the end being a right tackle. So that Eagles right side of the offensive line should be better. The Rams, I'm not worried about Aaron Donald. We've taken care of Aaron Donald in the past. To me, we will do it again. I know he's a beast, but the Eagles offensive line knows how to handle Aaron Donald. He has zero career sacks in three games against the Eagles. I think that streak continues Sunday, and I think that Carson Wentz has a big-time showing. You take a look at our Bills and Sean McDermott against the Dolphins and Brian Flores. I will say I will take Sean McDermott as the better head coach in this matchup, and I'll also take Josh Allen over Ryan Fitzpatrick. So I would have the Bills winning that game. Niners' chance is an easy one. Kyle Shanahan and Jimmy Garoppolo are better than Adam Gase and Sam Darnold. For the Broncos, Vic Vangio and Drew Ogg versus Steelers, Mike Tomlin, Big Ben. I would take the Steelers in that game. Jacksonville, Doug Marone, Gardner Minshew, Tennessee, Vrabel, Tannehill. I take Vrabel and Tannehill. For the Vikings, this is a close one here. Zimmer and Cousins versus the coach Frank Reich and Rivers. I would take Zimmer and Cousins in that matchup only because I think Zimmer edges out Frank Reich by a teeny bit. I think Kirk Cousins is better than Phil Rivers. Matt Nagy and Joe Judge, Mitch Trubisky versus Daniel Jones. Why do you think Daniel Jones is a better quarterback than Mitch Trubisky? I think this is a coaching mismatch between Matt Nagy and Joe Judge. So I will take the Bears in that matchup. How about the Lions and Packers? Matt Patricia versus Matt LaFleur to me. You don't even need the, the quarterback combination. Aaron Rodgers is better than Matthew Stafford. Matt LaFleur is better than Matt Patricia. So I would say take the Packers in this matchup. Panthers and Bucks, I would take Bruce Arians over Matt Rule. Tom Brady over Teddy Bridgewater, I would take Tampa Bay. Falcons and Cowboys, I would take Mike McCarthy and Dak over Dan Quinn and Matt Ryan. This is really tough. But I don't think Matt, Mike McCarthy is a terrible coach. And I think Matt Ryan is, is on the downswing. I think Dak Prescott actually has a really good year. I thought that was a B-S-O-P-I call on Sunday night. I thought Jalen Ramsey clearly flopped. Could have changed the whole game. Could have gotten my bet right. 
With that being said, yeah, I'll take Mike McCarthy in Dallas this weekend. Hello, Washington. Ron Rivera and General Dwayne Askins. I will not take over Cliff Kingsbury and Kyler Murray. I think Arizona is a surprise team this year. I think Cliff Kingsbury and Kyler Murray are going to be married to each other for lots of years to come. Talked about this already. John Arbaugh, Lamar Jackson, as great as Deshaun Watson is, Deshaun Watson isn't going to be able to overcome Bill O'Brien. So I would take Baltimore in that matchup. Chiefs, Andy Reid against the Chargers, Anthony Lynn. I would take Mahomes and Reid over Tyron Taylor and Anthony Lynn. Patriots and Belichick and Cam versus Pete Carroll Russell Wilson. This is really tough because if you're going strictly off oats, you've got to take Belichick. Obviously, Cam there and Russ, but better QB to me by far is Russell Wilson. I think Pete Carroll is just enough. If you're going off coach and quarterback, to me, you've got to take Seattle if you include the quarterback in there. And then Drew Brees and Sean Payne will top Drew, uh, John Gruden and Derek Carr on Monday Night Football and the Las Vegas Raiders. So, again, this is just based off the quarterback-coach combination. So, we didn't do any analytical, you know, really breakdown of the offensive, defensive line, secondary, anything like that. You just take a look at these list of games and you say, okay, the coach and quarterback. And if you include the quarterback in this, it changes some of it. You know, again, if it's just coach, I might take Dan Quinn over Mike McCarthy. If it's just coach, I'm taking Bill Belichick over Pete Carroll. You know, if it's just coach, you know, maybe Ron Rivera right now versus Cliff Kingsbury. But Kyle Murray by far edges out Dwayne Askins. You know, uh, for, for instance here, uh, you know, Kyle Shannon easily edges out Adam Gates. So, there's some of these are, are easy, but a lot of them are, are hard, and we'll have to see how these quarterback combinations play out on Sunday. With that being said, that's it for the show today. That's it for Brands World today. Make sure you leave a like, leave a comment, leave a rate down below. Some great Week 2 NFL action. Again, shout out to the Browns for winning last night. We still do not know if Baker Mayfield's the future, but things are looking up for the Browns as well as, man, I can't wait to watch my Eagles. I can't wait to see Carson Wentz hopefully bounce back this weekend. There's a lot of good games on. I hope you guys enjoy all the good football, all the action going on in the NBA bubble. And what's up, the Indians can win too. Keep that streak alive against the Detroit Tigers and maybe possibly try to sneak into that five or six if they can overcome Minnesota. It'll be a little bit hard. But maybe they can try to get in to that second wild card position in the American League standings. With that being said, that's all the time we have for today's show. I'm Brandon Lewis from Brands World, and thank you guys for listening. We will see you guys next Friday. Enjoy all the games, and peace!